You are listening to the sermon series, Follow. In this sermon, Pastor Dan Chung examines the gospel according to Luke, the identity of Jesus, and the cost of discipleship. The following is a presentation of LifeLight Church in San Francisco. For more information and other audio content, please visit LifeLightChurch.org. Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and jump into our text today that we're going to study. And uh, the verse that we are going to tackle today uh, continues on from last couple of uh, the parts that we have studied. Jesus, we saw Jesus' action, and today what we hear is Jesus giving parable, and it is related to kind of the same crowd that are, that are there, and it relates to who, what he, the actions that he has shown us uh, in the past verses. So this is Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 28. So let's go ahead and uh, read. I'll read one verse and you read the next. Verse 11, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, no way to He summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, do business, do business with these until I come back. Uh, I missed the verse actually, um, because the verse fifteen is supposed to be there. Let me go back and look. Verse fifteen says, reads, when he returned, he ordered these slaves to be summoned so that he might find out. What they have gained by trading. First came forward and said, Lord, your pound has ten He said to them, Well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of ten cities. He said to him, And you rule over five cities. For I was afraid of you, because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then, when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. <coughs> the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we lift these words to you. We thank you for them, and we pray as we study them that you would give us understanding. You would convict our hearts, that our hearts would be moved with obedience to be molded in the way that you like us to be, and that we'll be challenged and we'll be encouraged and encouraging one another to act upon them. Pray that the, the words of our mouth and meditation of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. So it's a parable, 
And um, I'll tell you right now that if we just kind of look over the whole thing, basically what it's talking about is Jesus is telling them a story of himself, of basically himself as returning king. And, uh, and that's what the story is. King returning and those people who didn't want him to be a king, right? Who is protesting over them, being a, you know, having a king to rule over them. And this here we find a king coming back and slaves being accountable and being judged. And oftentimes, I think, over the past history in church, these words were reflected as, you know, thing of an eschatological uh, impression, which means this is end of the world kind of thing. But over and over again, we went through this, Luke doesn't give the story of something that is far ahead, but he's talking to people in his own time. Jesus is speak, speaking to people in his own time. So we need to reflect upon that. So it's not that this judgment is coming at the end of the world, but judgment is coming to these people who are listening, which means, and we're going to see that in next stories where Jesus is crying over the city of Jerusalem, and he's cleaning out the temple and all of that. And at the end, we know that in AD 70, the Jerusalem falls and people are scattered and slaughtered and judgment had come upon them, right? So that's the kind of way we need to look at. But in all these stories that we find Jesus in, basically what he's doing and these parables he's telling, he's basically telling people what he's doing and what it means. And this is, this is a real good example of it. He's telling this parable to explain, this is what I'm doing, this is me, what I'm doing, and this is what it means. But he's saying it in a way that it's encouraged, you know, the listeners to dig deeper into the words to understand what it means. So, verse 11, it starts by saying, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable. So this is continuing on from the previous section, and it's a parable. So, here's why he's telling this parable. Right? He gives kind of gives it away. Uh, it says, because he was near Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is only about 15 miles away from... I mean, Jericho is only about 15 miles from Jerusalem. And he, Jesus just left Jerusalem. And it says, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was appear, to appear immediately. So there are two things that we need to understand on this one. People thought that Jerusalem had was significant in the start of the kingdom of God. So, hey, Jesus... We claim who he claims to be Messiah is going to be near the Jerusalem. It's going to happen now, right? It's going to happen because we're coming near the Jerusalem. And but they had a completely different meaning of what this kingdom of God was supposed to be. They thought Jesus in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus ruling, no more Roman Empire overthrown, and Israel will be the nation of the world ruling over them. That's what they thought. That's what they expected immediately to happen. So. What is Jesus' take on this stance on the immediate nature of kingdom of God? And we hear from the story, and we know as we studied along this, you know, the Gospel of Luke, that they're wrong, right? They're wrong. At least their idea of how the kingdom of God is coming is wrong. And kingdom of God will not be here completely for them and even for us until Jesus returns. So instead of telling them, yes, it's going to happen immediately, Jesus is actually telling them, well, it's actually going to be, the Lord is actually going to leave you. It's going to be a going away part. It's going to start in Jerusalem, but it's going to start with going away. I'm going to be gone. And you're going to be left without me. And what are you going to do? So that's kind of the, kind of the, you know, the framework of the story. 
And in that, Jesus tells a parable. So the parable <clears throat> is interesting. It's uh, When you look at it, there's a kind of double story to it. Um, and it find, we find it strange. And I think double story, each story has meant for a different group. And one story is about a nobleman, a lord, goes away to receive the title of a kingship, right, and comes back. That's one story. So at the beginning of the parable and the end of the parable is one story. And in this story, what we know is that people who are listening to this story kind of understand, can reflect, relate this to their historical events, what's going on in their, their history. Um, because there's a story of a king named Archelaus. And Archelaus was a ruling king not too long ago. And in this time in Jerusalem, if you wanted to be a king, you, need to go to, you needed to go meet the Roman Empire, right, Caesar, and be appointed, anointed as a king over Israel. You had to do that. So the Herod the Great, when he died, he left with three sons. And all three sons, guess what? Guess what they did? They all went to Rome, right, to claim each, to claim their kingship, make me the king, right? And this guy named Archelaus, when he went, delegates followed him after him to protest against his kingship. But somehow he won. He received the authority to rule Israel. But the empire said, well, but I'm not going to name you king until you prove to me that you're going to be a good enough king for this region that I'm ruling over. Right? So he came back with authority. He killed about 3,000 of people who were against him. Right? So obviously he wasn't a very good king. And uh, later on, his authority was taken away. He never really became a king. So, people are listening to this story, and Jesus is kind of reflecting on that. Hey, see, you, you're, not, you're not too unfamiliar with this, what I'm telling you. So, it's almost like, you know, if Jesus were to sit here and say, let me tell you a story about this person who wanted to give everybody a fair amount of medical care. And we're going to say, oh, we know this story, right? Because we know about, oh, the, he's gonna, it's like Obamacare, right? And didn't succeed, and we can relate to it. And this is, that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is telling a story, and people are able to relate to Jesus' story. But what Jesus, what it means, because it's a parable, it's about story of long-awaited return of Israel's king, right? And there is a hint of unwanted king here. Um, but whatever, the, and that is true, but this is a story of a king who is a rightful king who is a real king, who's actually a king that Israel had been waiting for. They have a temple. And what, what's going on in Israel is they have built the temple, but everyone in Israel knows that there's a temple, but God has not returned to the temple yet. For 400 years, 4,000 years, it's been, there has been silence. 400 years, there has been silence. We have not had the presence of God in our temple. It's God coming back. And the story is about Jesus claiming He's not just talking about God. He's embodying that story unto himself, saying, I am God. I am this king that you've been waiting for. I'm the God that you've been waiting for coming to Jerusalem. And that's, that's what Jesus is actually telling in, with the, through this story. Jesus is the awaited king. And he's coming. So there is judgment that is being prepared for the people. So, you see, the first story is, I think, reflects... To more to the people, or the crowd who is not yet the disciples of Jesus, more of the general audience, who is receiving correction and warning through the story that Jesus is saying. Um, that he's not going up to the city to claim the throne, rather he's going away and he's going to return. So your expectation is wrong, but you need to be ready because judgment is coming to you. The other story, the second 
story of it is more to the disciples. Because it's a parable of calling slaves and examining whether they're faithful and whether they will be accountable um, upon the return of the Lord. So that's the second part of the story, right? It's a story about a nobleman, a lord, going away and entrusting ten servants with each of them with a pound, ten pounds total. So when you read this story, it kind of reminds you maybe about parable of uh, talent, ten talents. And uh, this is the same similar uh, parable that we read in the Matthew. But there's a difference. In Matthew, in the parable of ten talents, of the talents, it's concerned more about the ability and, and strength of the people and each person within that story. Each has different types of uh, um, capacity and strength and talents, right? And each are given different types of some. Like some are given large, some are given little, right? So it's, it's a parable that reminds us about, hey, everybody has different gifts and different talents to bring in. But in Luke, in this parable, the sum that is given are small. It's one pound. And they're all the same, right? And what's, not, what's going on is the servants are being tested with this. They're being examined what they would do. Would they bring in the investment back? Would they double it? What would they do with the little amount that they are given? So there's a really simple uh, task. And it's really, in the end, the test of are you, you going to live out the faith? Are you going to be accountable? Are you going to be... What's your attitude in this task is going to be? Is what's being played out in this parable. So, two stories, right? One parable. There are two stories running. So, looking at that parable here, verse 13. He, he summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. A pound, here what they received is called mina and... Uh, Basically, what it is, it's about, at this time of, in history, about three months of salary, your, your work. Of both, it is common people's three-month salary. So if we look at, like, in Bay Area, it'll be like $150,000. Well, it's not a small amount of money, um, but it's not a huge amount of money, right? But it's quite a bit for you to do something with, with right? So um, that's what it is. And uh, it says... He summoned slaves, but obviously they're not slaves because no slaves would receive money to invest in, right? They would not have that freedom. So these are called slaves, but they're not so much. Verse 15, which you're missing, it says, When he returned, he ordered these slaves to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained through trading. And what the story that we find here is, first slave, what happened to this guy? How did, how did he do? He gained 10 times more, 1,000% return, right? Great. Right? And he, so he's praised by the master and he's given 10 cities. The second slave, how do you do? 500% increase, right? Still pretty good, right? Very good. So the same has been spoken about him and he's given five cities. What about the third slave? The other one? Zero increase, right? And he's rebuked. He did nothing. He just laid it away in a piece of cloth, in like a napkin. What about the rest? What happened to, to the other seven? They're not mentioned. And so we're kind of left to our imagination. But that it's enough, right? What we see is, because there's always going to be two types. There's going to be one who's done something with it. There's going to be person. There's going to be one who hasn't done anything to it. And so we reflected on these two groups. And that's all we need. But it's a parable. So what runs deeper meaning in this story is also about 
the what the king and his servants mean. So in first century Judaism, whenever there's a story about king and his people and servants, it's a story about God and Israel, right? So what Jesus is saying is again goes back to the first story that he's coming back, and Israel is being summoned and examined. What have you done with what I've given you? What have you done? And I think the point Jesus points more to the ones who kept it away in a cloth and did nothing to it. And that judgment is coming. Verse 26, I tell you to all those who have more will be given and but for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This cannot be taken out of context. This the Jesus doesn't mean rich will be richer and poor will be poorer. We need to look at it in a context and what it means is if you've done well, more will be rewarded to you. If you've done nothing and if you have nothing, then I will take more away from you. And it's the parable, right? I mean, it's the proverb that winners get more, losers lose more. Right? Um, but you can see that we look at this slave who has everything taken away, but he's not the worst kind. Right? We see that in verse 27. He seems like, oh man, but what had happened to him is modest compared to what happened to everybody else. Verse 27, it says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, what happens? Bring them over here and I'll slaughter them in front of me. All of them. So, the real tragedy is to the people who were against the king coming back. The Lord who went away and came back as a true king with authority. Verse 28, After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. This concludes our uh, the journey narrative section of the Gospel of Luke. We started from uh, chapter 9, verse 51, when Jesus said he faced toward the Jerusalem. And that started the journey. Now this verse is concluding the journey. And next week he's going to enter into Jerusalem. So we're concluding that section. So, what do we do with this? The parable. I think the immediate question that I think we should ask ourselves is, who are you in the story? Right? Because Jesus is referring to people and different types of people. So who are you? Who are you in the story? Or who are you or who do you desire to be is the question you want to ask yourselves, right? Are you the, well, are you the nobleman and the Lord? No, because that's Jesus. Then, are you the citizens, delegations, bystanders, Verse 27 says, But as for these enemies of mine, who will not want me to be king over them. So the question is, do you want Jesus to be king over you? Rule over you? Are you like the crowd? Delegates? Who would oppose Jesus to be king? And I think, if all of us are honest with ourselves, at some point in our lives, or maybe some of us are struggling to place God to rule over us. Right? Sometimes people are like delegates, actively opposing God. Some people do in secrecy. The crowd, the bystanders, they're not taking any sides, but in their hearts, they're opposing God to rule over them. And same as we protested against God's ruling over us in our lives. So we were all, at one point, or still are, in some ways, enemies of God, opposing God to rule over our lives. We're holding back in some parts. God, you can control over this but I will not submit to these things. And 
This is the story. Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Jesus coming into our lives means we are faced with a decision. Will you let God rule over you? Or will you oppose? And you know the whole our society nowadays? We're completely, completely against Jesus, a God ruling over us. It's all about us. Me, we praise self-sufficiency. Like, I think it this way. Or if you think that, that way, then hey, it's good for you. Then it's great. Right? I'm responsible for my own actions. If I'm okay with it, then you're okay. I judge myself. That's the, that's the world that we live in. Everyone is going toward your own, your, your, your own king, your, your own ruler, your own, your own judge. No one can judge you. you know, only you can. But the gospel calls us out to say, Jesus rules over you. Jesus is king over you, and Jesus will judge over you. So, are you like crowd? Are you the crowd, the delegates? Or are you good slaves or the wicked slaves? Which one are you? And to answer that, maybe we can ask some different questions on that. What have you received from the Lord? What's interesting about this is, everyone received equally. Everyone received ten, one pound, right? Everyone received the same. And what that's saying, I think, is we all received something. And we all received enough to produce something, to make something out of. Another question would be, what is your business for the kingdom of God, for the master send out? Go ahead, go out and do business with this. What is your business for the kingdom of God? How are you investing? I talked about investment in the newsletter. Investment... And we, you know, we, I think we sometimes, um, and you know, Ken is here, he's in the finance, and we tend to look down upon or think critical of investors, but investors are one of the hardest working people. They really are, because investing takes a lot of work. Um, my roommate, old roommate, he worked at the uh, Pacific Stock Exchange, and he has to go to work at 4 a.m. in the morning, because they open up, they open like at 5 a.m. to be aligned with, you know, the, the other stock exchange. Right at the same time with the East Coast, and they work hard. Investors, they're up, and there's some of the uh, young life uh, sports I know who are investors. They wake up 4 a.m. in the morning. They're watching the stock market. They're watching what's going on. They're reading Wall Street Journal, which is like this thick every day, and it's boring. Right? They work hard. They're diligent. They're not lazy. Right? They're completely aware. And not only are they reading about the market, they're reading about the politics and in an economy and social studies because everything relates to the market. So, investing takes a lot of work. So, the question is, how are you investing then? How are you gaining knowledge like these people? The learning market, right? How are you learning? Becoming more knowledgeable. And what we do, I mean, basic, most basic stuff we do is doing Bible studies and coming here Sunday learning, but also on your own, what are you doing to learn about God, and also not just about God, but about the, how the world is going? What are people being taught in this world that we, can, we need to teach them better? How are people broken? What is brokenness? How can we reach out to them? What are you learning, right? Are you diligent? Right? Like these investors, they are hardworking. Or are you just lazy? Because no investors are lazy. Are you diligent? Making efforts and taking risk. Investing takes risks. You may lose. Right? You may lose everything that you want. So, 
are you making risk? And you know, one of the reasons why I, I don't do investing because I'm a, I'm a wimp. I don't like taking risk. And you know, the reason that I, I'm a wimp and I don't take risk is because I don't do the above things. I don't study the market. I'm not knowledgeable, right? And uh, I, I'm not, I don't want to wake up five in the morning watching stock news and reading the Wall Street journals. I don't do any of those stuff. So I, I'm a wimp, right? So everything kind of comes together. Are you learning to invest for the kingdom? Are you being diligent and working hard? And are you taking risks? Because sharing the gospel and doing things differently, living our lives as Jesus called us to be, to, is risky. And, um, but we're not called to just stand still and do nothing, but use our gift and progress. Another question is, what is the desired return and reward that we seek out to? Are we all expected to bring ten times and five times? What did the others have done? And I think when you look at it, what teaches is both are blessed. And I think the rest of the nine, the whole nine of them are blessed. I, I think some of them might have brought that, Lord, I tried, and I, but I lost it. And I think Jesus will still praise him. Well, you tried. You worked hard. That's okay. I'm the king. I own everything. I have everything. Right? So, what desire? What is the desire return and reward? And is it a matter of a heart or result then? Right? Are we supposed to bring something back or is it just a matter of heart? Heart is important. And what about the result? And I want to say it's both. Right? Because you can bring the result. You're, the result that you bring is meaningless without the right heart. And if you have the heart, then you would bring something to the Lord in return. And I think one of the amazing things about this story that we need to walk away understanding is what does Jesus give as a reward? Rest? What does Jesus give as reward? More work. Opportunities. More work. The reward, God's reward for us is more work. Not rest. Right? More work. Opportunity for even greater work. So, let's ask this question. Are you, are we like the wicked slave? Verse 20 says, Then the other came saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, but I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. This guy is fearful, and he's done absolutely nothing of what he's received. And not only that, he misunderstands his master. And uh, I think I don't think he means what he means if he actually know the master. I think he's just giving excuses. So the question for us, if we are like a wicked slave, are you like that? Are you fearful? Or do you understand the God? Or do you fear God? Or are you making excuses? I mean, what's your excuse? If you're like a wicked slave who has done nothing, who's doing nothing, wrapped it up and just putting it away, what's your excuse? Verse 23, what then... Did you not put my money... Why then did you not put my money into bank then? When I returned, I would have collected uh, with interest. What Jesus is saying is, the wicked slaves, it's not only wicked, but he's stupid. Right? He's stupid. He's not thinking. He's a fool. Right? He could have just at least gained interest. 
I don't think I'm stupid because I've done at least like CD certificate and made some interest out of some of the money that we used to have on the site, right? <laughs> um, not anymore. So then, don't ask me for money. And this guy's stupid, right? He could have just given it to bank, put it away in a bank, and he would have collected interest. And bank, there's no bank in this time. It's called um, lenders. You would give it to the lenders, and they would collect and give it back to you um, with interest. And it's called lenders bench. And really, the English word bank comes from the bench, because that's where people used to leave money, and come, when they return it, they collect interest, right? This guy is stupid. He's not, he doesn't do that. And not only that, he's careless. He doesn't care. He doesn't protect money. He's irresponsible because wrapping money in a perishable cloth was considered one of the most irresponsible ways to take care of money. You don't even put it in a box. He puts it in a little cloth. You don't even bury it. He just holds it in a little cloth. He's careless. He doesn't care about the master or the money. He's irresponsible. He's wicked. He took the master's money but he didn't take the responsibility that came with it. So are you like the wicked slave? Are you silent like him? Saying nothing, doing nothing, risking nothing, avoiding conflict. Are you irresponsible? You prefer to do nothing rather than taking a risk? Not even trying. And I want this to be reflect, for you to reflect on this. All of us have received something from the Lord and is enough. And it may differ. All of us have different strength, different type of passion, different way to you know, you know, do things. But we all have received equally and, and enough. What are you doing with it? Are you doing nothing? Are you just king, being silent? Hiding away? Because you don't want to take a risk. Or well, what about my relationship with these people? What if I upset these people? What if I come across as stupid or weird and offensive. What are you doing with it? Let me close with this. Jesus said, Well done, good slave, because you have trust you have been trustworthy in the very small things. Take charge of ten cities. It says you've been diligent, you've been trustworthy, you've been good with small things. What are those small things? So it's not Everybody starts small. And if you can be good with small things, then why would anybody give you greater things, bigger things? So what are the small things you have? And, you know, I want everyone to start with small things. And these small things are people you have around you. And that's what we as a church pursue, you know, pursue is that I want all of you to be living out life. Just that's loving to those around you. Start small. We don't need to do anything huge, big, Take care of those around you, your friends. Pray for them, right? And if you have gathered any sense from the prayer request that we shared, there is a lot of work to do. There is a lot. Just for the people around you, there's so much work for us to do. The amount that we need to pray for, care for them, reach out to them, speak to them, nurture them, be brave for them, right? Protect them. There is a lot of work to be done. It may appear small, but Jesus said, be diligent with small things. What are you doing about it? And we talk a lot about how God is trustworthy and we trust God. But here it says, Jesus said, you've been trustworthy. And the question really is, can God trust you? 
I think maybe if we answer that, another different way to uh, question is, should God trust you? And I think the obvious answer to that is no. How could God trust me? Me, who were his enemies, who are sinners, who, who always run away, who does nothing, who's failed so many times. And the mystery is that God desires to trust us. He's left his work for us. He's left us with investment. He's investing in our lives. Wants to go out and do his work. Even though he shouldn't trust us, he desires to. So when it comes to question, can God trust you? And I want that question to be haunting and troubling to all of you. If God comes to you and face to face say, can I trust you? What would you say? How would you respond? And I want you to look back on what you have done so far. What have you done? Can what you have done speak to say, I've done these things, God. I failed and I, didn't, I haven't done so well and I struggled and I made mistakes, but I really tried. Like some of the slaves that came back. That you tried and you took risk in, in spite of your shortcomings. Or have you held back and did nothing? Then what would you say? For a slave who's done nothing, if and God comes to you and says, Can I trust you? To the work that's left for us, your families, your friends, those you love, people on the Muni, in Bart, city, broken city. Can God trust you? And it's even troubling and haunting question for ministers like Josh and I. It's hard, hard question. And I think for us to be accountable, we need to ask that ourselves all the time. Can God trust me with you and with the people that he would bring in our hands? But all of you are called to be priests. God has placed people in your lives. And God is saying to you, can I trust you with these people? Are you going to be trustworthy servant? So let me close us just to remind you. In these hard questions, we also have to remember grace. That with the burden and with judgment, there is also grace. We hold all of that together. And even when we fail, God calls us to try. Take a risk. And we can do that because there is grace. And God has invested our lives. We live invested life. Not only with what he has received, but he's pulled out as an investment with his blood and his body. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. And he's invested in us. And he's given everything, given up his life. Because he desires to trust in us. He desires for us to go forth and do the work that he entrusted to us. Can God trust you? Let me pray. Jesus, help us to reflect on what you have given us and what we have done with it. Help us reflect on the question that, can you trust us? Help us remember grace at the same time, but help us, in our reflection, desire to commit ourselves and be obedient to you. Take risk. But we pray that you give us courage. You make us brave. You lead us to be equipped and let our hearts in you know, align with 
our efforts be all for you and purely for you. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes our presentation. For more information and other audio content, please visit lifelightchurch.org.